You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your other host, Katie Putz, also recording from Washington, D.C. Hey, Katie, good to be back with you. Uh, always. Well, so unfortunately, our plans for a follow-up podcast on Ukraine have been somewhat rudely interrupted uh, by everybody's favorite uh, stylish dictator, Kim Jong-un. Um, but... Katie, why don't you uh, why don't you take it away? Yeah, so um, we we will get back to Ukraine, we promise. Uh, but I think this week it's a good idea for us to talk about North Korea's latest missile launch, which was a little bit different from some of its other launches this year. And uh, I'll let I'll let you explain um, precisely what happened this week and why we're talking about North Korea today. Yeah, sure. So. Basically, the North Koreans launched a very large missile, an intercontinental range ballistic missile, and uh, this was the first time that they've done this since November 2017, or at least the first time they've done this in a, in the in the sense of a full range ICBM test. You know, launching a huge missile, letting all the fuel burn out, sending it to huge heights, and then splashing it down in the East Sea slash Sea of Japan. Um, so. Vital statistics of the launch, what happened March 24th uh, near Pyongyang, uh, actually at Pyongyang Civilian Airport, Sudan International Airport, um, the North Koreans launched uh, a missile that went to an altitude of 6,200 kilometers, 6,200 kilometers above the Earth's surface, so significantly higher than low Earth orbit, um, and that missile eventually splashed down uh, about 1,080 kilometers away from its initial launch point. So it didn't overfly Japan. It didn't demonstrate an ICBM range over the Earth's surface. But this missile, if they hadn't launched it on what's known as a lofted trajectory, uh, would certainly be capable of ranging the entirety of the United States all the way down to the Florida Keys and then some. So uh, and then the North Koreans released a bunch of images uh, and these images were, um, you know, pretty stunning. I mean, there was, I think, one that's gotten quite a bit of uh, airtime where Kim Jong Un is in this black leather jacket walking away from his missile, uh, looking very Top Gun. Um, <laughs> and um, the North Koreans are, are really back at it. Uh, and, you know, I think I think, uh, you know, more seriously, though, this represents really, I think, a return to the, the type of weapons testing that the U.S. and South Korea and Japan have really tried to dissuade North Korea from returning to since um, the diplomacy of 2018-2019 collapsed. But we knew this was coming uh, for a long time. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm happy to go into the indicators, but like really this has been a slow rolling thing since the Hanoi summit in, in early 2019. Uh, and so here we are. Kim Jong-un is launching huge missiles again. Yeah, so I am curious about um, the sort of self-imposed moratorium on this kind of launch. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, um, you know, the last time North Korea launched an ICBM test like this was 2017, uh, which you covered <laughs> quite in depth at The Diplomat. It was some, some crazy times. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, what drove the the decision to to stop doing that for a period of time? And then and what do you think has triggered sort of this this rollback? Yeah. So, no, that's a I mean, that's a terrific question. because I think it actually lets us get away from, you know, the news cycle and like the specific test, because, you know, I'm still analyzing what exactly happened in this test. And, and you know, if uh, you know, there's a small chance the North Koreans might actually have completely um, deceived us in terms of what missile was actually tested. It was still an ICBM, <laughs> but it might not have been the Hwasong 17, which which they showed off at a parade in 2020. But anyways, uh, yeah, Katie, so let's go back to April 2018. Uh, but even before we go that, I think the right place to start is actually November 2017, which was the last time North okay. Korea tested an ICBM. They tested a missile 
known as the Hwasong-15, which was the Mm -hmm. largest missile at the time that North Korea had ever tested. Uh, And immediately after that test, Kim Jong-un declared his nuclear deterrent complete. And so it was this very kind of notable moment where sort of 30 years of nuclear development in North Korea sort of came to a close in a way, right? I mean, or they didn't actually come to a close because North Korea has been building up its deterrent since then. But what Kim was saying was that, you know, we've we've sort of checked off all of the qualitative things that we needed to do. We, we tested mm-hmm. two different types of nuclear weapons over six tests, including a thermonuclear weapon. We developed ICBMs. We developed uh, shorter range missiles. And so we have basically the building blocks of what we need to put into place a strategy of nuclear deterrence. And um, then on January 1st, 2018, uh, Kim delivered a New Year's Day address in which he uh, basically extended an olive branch to Moon Jae-in in South Korea, who he knew would reciprocate that. And, and that's sort of what kicked off the process of diplomacy, which sort of led mm-hmm. to the, the initial talks at the PyeongChang Winter Olympic Games in, in February mm-hmm. 2018. Uh, obviously, the, the, the historic Pyongyang uh, or sorry, the historic Panmunjom summit in April 2018 between Moon and Kim, the Singapore summit between Trump and Kim, the Pyongyang summit again between Moon and Kim, and then the Hanoi summit, which was really where everything kind of the House of Cards kind of came tumbling down. Uh, House of Cards in the sense that, you know, Trump and Kim never really had a a detailed discussion about what it would mean for North Korea and the United States to enter into an agreement that would, you know, see the North Koreans give up some things that we care about in exchange for the North Koreans getting some sanctions relief. And so... You know, the the moratorium was announced in April 2018, just a little more than a week before Kim met with Moon Jae-in. And it was interesting because if you go back and you read that speech and, you know, Kim's talking at a party plenary, uh, he doesn't talk about South Korea or the United States. He doesn't say, you know, we're doing this to be nice to South Korea and the United States. He says, you know, we're great. Our ICBMs are great. Our nuclear weapons are great. We don't need to test these things anymore. We've, we've, We've done what we needed to do. Our engineers and scientists have really shown us what they're capable of. And so I, as of today, am announcing that we're not going to test ICBMs and nuclear weapons anymore. But obviously, you know, that framing was the right framing for Kim talking to the Workers' Party of Korea. Uh, But -hmm. then eventually, you know, you begin to see statements in North Korean state media, statements by North Korean officials saying that the moratorium is actually something they offered the U.S., that they expected sort of compensation for it. So this phrase, corresponding measures, became very Mm. relevant in the diplomacy later, where the North Koreans said, look, we gave you a moratorium, we stopped testing nuclear weapons, and we stopped testing ICBMs, two things you really care about. What did we get for it? Exactly. So so what are you going to give us for it? And and that's really where things ended, right? The the Hanoi summit collapsed. Mm -hmm. And then immediately after the Hanoi summit, uh, about, you know, two weeks or so after that, um, North Korean officials begin pointing to the fact that, you know, our leader will decide... uh, if if and when uh, to uh, mm-hmm. to end the moratorium, uh, and uh, here we are. North Korea has ended the moratorium and is launching ICBMs again, and they're building up their nuclear test site again. So that could happen too. Yeah, uh, I sort of the this naturally I think leads to an interesting question about you know technical capabilities versus political signaling and political necessities. I think for a long time we've kind of looked at North Korea like they can't do stuff, but they clearly have demonstrated a lot of this technology, at least in tests. Now, obviously using these things is different, um, but I'm kind of curious about your take on this, the sort of the question about the technical capabilities of, of the North Korean state when it comes to ICBMs, nuclear weapons. And then, you know, what where what is the political place that that kind of puts North Korea either where leaders want to be, you know, this idea that we are also a sovereign country and you should respect us um, versus, you know, how the United States sort of looks at these developments. 
Yeah, so I think I think Paul's you know, I think I think the US intelligence community and military planners are are basically taking North Korea's nuclear capability seriously, uh, which is good mm-hmm. uh, because you know, I think the worst possible thing would be for the United States to pretend like North Korea doesn't have these weapons and mm-hmm. you know, pretend like it's the mid-90s and we might be able to actually conventionally repel North Korea, right? In the 90s the, the concern was that North Korea would rain uh, tremendous amounts of artillery on Seoul. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously, nuclear weapons are uh, orders of magnitude more more uh, damaging. Uh, so, you know that that I think is good news. Uh, but you're right. I mean, uh, you know, I think people have underestimated the North Koreans over the years, and and they've proven, uh, you know, that they've able to like uh, they have put the resources of a nation state into this thing that they believe is super important, which is developing a nuclear deterrent. And so. Our economic sanctions, attempts to dissuade them uh, have really just failed because Kim Jong-un and his father and his grandfather decided that this was something that they needed to do uh, in order Mm -hmm. to survive. Uh, The North Koreans have this sort of, you know, understanding of international relations uh, that actually I think, you know, the war in Ukraine has sort of vindicated in, in many ways for them, which is that. You know, the only currency in international affairs is, is power uh, that, you know, rules and norms and institutions mm-hmm. are, are basically fictions and, and the only currency is power. And so for a small country like North Korea in, in a neighborhood that they perceive to be rough, the, the only, uh, you know, the only logical course of action is not to enter alliances, but to build up their own capabilities and to have their own assurances. Um, and so, you know, it's not that the North Koreans do everything perfectly and that they have, uh, you know, this remarkable aptitude for building missiles and nuclear mm-hmm. weapons. Um, it's just that they've they've decided that this is what they care about and they've put efforts into it. Uh, you know, I mean, so actually with with the test that I just described at the start of this discussion, uh, I should also point out that, you know, just a few days before that test, uh, they had a major missile failure uh, out of that same site. So they launched a missile mm-hmm. that failed over Pyongyang. Um, they launched it from the same airport, which is just very, very dangerous and irresponsible, in my opinion. But um, that missile failed. And so it's possible that was an ICBM uh, that failed. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't know for sure. I haven't seen anything authoritative. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really, I mean, the North Koreans are at this point, I, I would say, maturing as a nuclear weapons power in many ways. You know, gone are the days when we would be debating, you know, do the North Koreans have a, a small enough nuclear warhead uh, to put on a missile? Mm-hmm. Do the North mm-hmm. Koreans have the ability to range the U.S. homeland? Those questions, I think, have been resolved, uh, and now it's a it's it's a very different kind of uh, conversation that we're having. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to these ICBMs, I think I'm curious about the costs. So, obviously, as you said, you know, the North Korean state has put everything into developing these capabilities, and they have developed those capabilities. What are the, what are the costs of these kinds of technologies and and you know i think costs is a a money term but also a social mm-hmm. and economic more broadly term so so can you talk a little bit about sort of the costs that the north korean state has undertaken to do this and and what maybe that tells us about kind of the longevity of holding this up yeah i mean i think i think the cost question is really tough because i think it's very difficult to put a dollar value on mm-hmm. um a single weapons test, right? I mean, for instance, you mean you don't have the receipts, <laughs> right? No, exactly. Like in the North Korean system, obviously, like pricing labor, for instance, is very difficult, mm-hmm. right? I mean, one of the reasons the U.S. has the defense budget that it does is because labor and 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 you know uh, human resources are very expensive in the U.S. Whereas in North Korea, um, you know, uh, Kim Jong Un doesn't necessarily have to worry about uh, compensation packages for his uh, for his engineers and scientists, although they are treated very well. Um, and in terms of the material inputs, uh, there's a lot that actually the North Koreans do indigenously. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. um, I think, I, I, I think one of the pervasive sources of misunderstanding is that 
uh, everything the North Koreans do is really about you know things that they're getting from overseas and illicit procurement, and there is there's some of that, and it's and it's significant. Um, but over the last thirty years, I mean, they've they've really um, developed their own chops. Uh, Kim Jong Un, I mean, repeatedly emphasizes that you know science and technology are the way of the future. He he promotes youth studying engineering and mm -hmm. computer science for you know cyber uh, you know cyber espionage and things like that. And so um, building up these capabilities has been really been a priority for them. So let me let me address then costs in terms of the opportunity cost because obviously you know this does take away from. North Korea's ability to invest in its economy, invest in mm -hmm. conventional weapons, invest in all, all other range of things that normal governments might seek to do. Uh, and so those effects, I think, are are unfortunate. Uh, you know, I mean, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, but in since 2020, since the COVID-19 pandemic, um, North Korea has been more closed off than I can recall. I mean, I mean, I mean, really, mm -hmm. I think we have less insight into North Korea than we even did in the late 90s when the famine was happening under Kim Jong-il. Uh, and so Kim Jong-un has this very difficult internal environment. He's got a pandemic. He's got a struggling economy. He's facing, econ uh, you know, he's still dealing with economic sanctions. And also North Korea has basically sanctioned itself better than we could ever hope to because they've closed themselves off to the world because they're so terrified of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but that said, the external environment uh, is just incredibly favorable right now for the, you know, these kinds of weapons tests. I mean, mm -hmm. in 2017, Katie, I mean, the Security Council wasn't, the sort of farce that it is today with with russia you know basically uh, using it as an opportunistic uh platform uh, to bully the united states in many ways and so russia and china actually you know allowed for new sanctions resolutions to go through in 2017. Mm -hmm. i cannot imagine for the life of me today beijing or moscow um supporting new sanctions on north korea i mean they've been very public that they think that the u.s should get over it and recognize north korea's legitimate security interests and uh, give North Korea sanctions relief effectively to improve the situation. And so all of this, I think, uh, you know, creates a situation where the North Koreans are probably going to keep doing what they're doing. Um, and costs ultimately, I think, are just something that really doesn't weigh on, uh, you know, their mm -hmm. decision making here. I mean, they have a lot of missiles. I mean, they, they've been testing missiles remarkably frequently. So they're manufacturing these things, testing mm -hmm. them, and then they have enough left over for their operational needs as well. Yeah. So that sort of, you know, I think leaves us in an interesting uh, new place. Um, regionally, so South Korea is soon to have a new president. How do you think that is factoring into the situation or, or could um, sort of change the approach, uh, particularly of South Korea? But I think that would also influence some of the U.S. approach eventually. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, obviously this is unknowable, but I would have bet, <laughs> you know, I would bet anything that we would have seen an ICBM test on you know, March 24th, 25th, 26th, depending on the weather, uh, even if, you know, Lee Jae-myung had won the South mm -hmm. Korean presidency. I don't think, I don't think the North Koreans, uh, you know, change their military testing calendar according to political development in South Korea or the United States. It's, it, it's, it's a small part of their thinking. Uh, but, you know, mm -hmm. you see these uh, headlines that are like, you know, Kim Jong-un tests Joe Biden or tests Yoon Suk-yeol. Yeah, it's uh, not a personal message, right? It's not, like, it it's does, not. It I doesn't mean, have a, like, yeah, dear Joe on the, the I mean, top of the missile. <laughs> it's it's really simple, right? I mean, North Korea is sort of always exoticized as this impossible to understand country. But really, they test missiles because they want to know if their missiles work, because they need missiles that work to do nuclear deterrence. It's just very simple. You know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and, you know, there are sort of secondary and tertiary reasons for testing. And maybe some of, you know, some of the time it's about signaling to the U.S. or, or you know, uh, trying to get the Americans to 
take things up at the negotiating table, but really that's never the primary purpose. The primary purpose of testing things, either operationally or developmentally, Just is to see if they work. Weapons. And if they work, give your give your uh, you know give your armed forces some operational experience uh, operating mm -hmm. these things. So when if they have to actually use them in a conflict, they know what they're doing. It's you know they're just like they're just like everybody else in that in that regard. The North Koreans aren't sort of this alien species that that reason about these things in a in a inscrutable way. Um, but that said, I mean you know I think your question is is a really good one because uh, we're about to have a very significant change in the attitude of the administration in Seoul towards engagement with North Korea. Uh, the Moon Jae-in administration was very pro-engagement uh, mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, that had, I think, very important effects in 2017, 2018 and sort of um, lowering tensions. Um, but Yoon Suk-yeol is, I think, going to be under tremendous pressure to show that he has national security bona fides. He's a conservative president. His background is as a prosecutor. He wasn't very popular in the election. I mean, neither of the candidates were very popular to begin with. But Yoon Suk-yeol uh, also received... Um, you know, one of the criticisms he received was that, you know, as a former prosecutor, he didn't really have the chops to uh, lead South Korea as a uh, as a president who'd be serious and strong on national security on North Korea. And so he sort of overcorrected for that on the campaign trail by, you know, talking about American tactical nuclear weapons and preemptive strikes on North Korea. I'm, I don't necessarily think he's going to govern in that way because, you know, in democracies, candidates will campaign in poetry and govern in prose. Um, but, you know, there is the real chance that North Korea could undertake some kind of provocation against South Korea that Yoon then chooses to react to mm -hmm. in a very difficult or, you know, in, in a very strong way by sort of retaliating against North Korea. And then before we know it, we find ourselves in a major crisis on the Korean Peninsula. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying that it's, it's much more imaginable that a sequence of events like that could play out uh, under under a conservative South Korean president versus someone like Moon Jae-in, who I think would be <laughs> a little bit more restrained. Yeah, I, th I think that's a reasonable way to look at that, especially, you know, I think we sometimes discount the domestic features that influence foreign policy. And, and that certainly in South Korea, the question of North Korea and what to do about North Korea is, is an extremely salient uh, political issue. Um, and it will be interesting to see how the the incoming president um, handles that and, and what the sort of North Korean response and mm -hmm. all of that. Um, so I think I've exhausted the questions I have right now. Okay. Um, if well, it, you know, if there's anything else that you think we should have covered, uh, I will not be offended if you just throw it out there. Uh, nothing else. I think we've covered the basics. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the closing thought is that, uh, you know, things are about to get bad with North Korea. I think we're going to see a lot more a lot more testing. Uh, Kim Jong-un has said he wants to launch multiple satellites. There's mm -hmm. been uh, open source and closed source assessments saying that they're reconstituting their nuclear test site. And Kim Jong-un has talked about tactical nuclear weapons. So fortunately, Katie, I don't think this is the last podcast on North Korea we'll be doing this year. Probably not. <laughs> um, but I guess we'll uh, leave it there for today. So uh, to everyone listening, thanks a lot for uh, joining me uh, and and joining Katie. Uh, Katie, thanks for uh, thanks for the great questions. It's good to good to talk over all this with you. Thanks for always explaining nuclear missiles to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So for our listeners, if you like what you heard on the show, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that. Uh, you can leave that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, TuneIn, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. Uh, and uh, that's uh, all for now. And uh, Katie and I will be back with more soon. Thanks a lot.